Is abortion good or bad for women? We discuss this and more with special guest Erica Bakioki on this episode of The Overthinkers. Hello, thinking peoples, thinking people. Welcome to The Overthinkers, a home for people who love to have fun thinking deeply. I'm your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, film critic, resident, nuanced ideologue, and with me as always is my thrillingly thoughtful co-host. Nathan Clarkson, actor, author, filmmaker, and someone um, who opts out of having strong opinions on things that I don't actually experience. So, <laughs> which is the reason nice. for our guest today. Oh, nice segue. Yes, with us today is a very special guest. She is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a legal scholar specializing in equal protection, jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching, and sexual ethics. She is also a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she founded and directs the Wollstonecraft Project. Her newest book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, was published by Notre Dame University Press in 2021. Her essays have appeared in publications like Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, Christian Bioethics, The New York Times, The Atlantic, First Thing, CNN.com, National Review Online, National Affairs, Claremont Review of Books, SCOTUS Blog, and Public Discourse. She is the editor of two books, Women, Sex, and the Church, A Case for Catholics teaching and the cost of choice women evaluate the impact of abortion she serves on the advisory boards of the common good project the catholic women's forum the susan b anthony birthplace museum sir thomas st thomas more academy ethics finder and the center for law and human person at the catholic university of america she is the co-founder of st benedict classical academy at natwick massachusetts where she served as president of the board from 2013 to 2015 she is the elegant the enlightening the electrifying erica bakowick you know, I did that wrong. <laughs> you fool! <laughs> this Bakiyoki. is a running gag. Bakiyoki. Wow. So close. Welcome to the show, Erica. Yes. Thank you. It's such an impossible name. Don't worry. <laughs> and it has nothing compared to your impossibly long resume. So. Yeah, sorry about that. You should have cut that down. I don't know, no but way. I just—I was so impressed by it. I just wanted everyone to know all of the things that you had done because I looked at your bio and I was like, "Wow, this is an impressive guest." You just made oh, our podcast so much more impressive. So thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I, I meant to note the uh, the the uh, nice adjectives ahead of my name. I should go tell my children those and see if, <laughs> see what they think. <laughs> well, the truth is, you know, that the, they will they will secretly agree with them, even if they pretend not to. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> As a former son, my son, a present son, but former, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know that. Um, anyway, we're so glad to have you on. Um, but yes, we are going to be talking about uh, discussing the issue of abortion and whether it harms women, which is something you've talked about a lot. So we're very excited to have you on. But first, Nathan, if people enjoy our discussion and want to engage with more of our content and meet fellow overthinkers like themselves, where should they go? They can go to the overthinkersjournal.com and they can find out more about their hosts and send us all of their love and hate mail. And I'm hoping we don't get too much of the latter after this episode. This is an incendiary topic, um, but we're really excited to dive in and think about this deeply. Um, if they also want to connect with overthinkers like themselves, they can go to our private online online Facebook group called The Overthinkers, where we have now over 14,000 members getting into great discussions and posting Lots and lots of very intellectual memes. So head over there. Uh, we want you among our ranks. Um, if you do enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a review and sharing with a friend. It really does help us so very much. Right. So everyone ready to get started? Let's do it. Right. <laughs> so abortion is one of the most divisive and emotional topics in America today. Merriam-Webster defines abortion as the termination of a pregnancy after, accompanied by, resulting in, or closely followed by the death of the embryo or fetus. Although in public discussions, people are almost always referring to an intentional termination of pregnancy. According to Pew Research, the CDC says that there were almost 700,000 abortions nationally in 2020 in the District of Columbia and 47 states, a 1.5% decrease from the previous year. The debate around abortion typically revolves around whether or not the fetus is alive or a person in the traditional sense, and whether or not the fetus, uh, and in cases, wait, 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 a person, and in what cases the rights of the fetus and the rights of the woman take precedence. On the one hand, you have those who identify as pro-life, claiming that when a woman intentionally terminates a pregnancy, she is killing a baby who is further along in development but still alive and should therefore um, terminating should be illegal. 
On the other hand, you have those identified as pro-choice who believe the pre-born baby is not alive or not a person with rights, and therefore the pregnant woman should be free to terminate the pregnancy if she chooses, whether that's for financial, career, health, or other reasons. But recently, pro-life advocates have been making the case that abortion is bad for both the child and the mother. Articles like LifeSite News piece, abortion is bad for women's health, here's why. The National Review piece, we must acknowledge that abortion harms women, argue that abortion does verifiable harm to women's mental and physical health long after abortion takes place. Outlets like the New York Times piece, does being denied an abortion harm mental health, argues, on the other hand, that the differences between health outcomes between women who get abortions and those who do not are minimal and are far outweighed by the health and financial uh, and financial and life costs of being denied one. So, Miss <clears throat> um, Bakiaki, I first became aware of you through your paper, How Abortion Hurts Women, the Hard Proof. And this is interesting to me, of course, because... Yeah the that the debate has so long been whose rights do we take precedence the big child or the mothers but you were arguing as is starting to be argued more that actually abortion harms both the child and the mother you in the article you talk about how you started out as strongly pro-choice until in part you saw the ways that abortion hurts women so can you talk us through the ways you saw and see women being harmed by abortion Sure. And thanks so much for having me on. It is a very, very difficult question, obviously, especially in our time. We're now debating it more because Roe has been overturned. So I guess I would point first to um, that article, I believe, was probably written around the time of my first book, the first volume I edited called The Cost of Choice for Encounter Books, Women Evaluate the Impact of Abortion. And this is when you really did. This is uh, actually 2004. So a good 20 years ago. And really, when I entered the movement right out of law school, um, yes, having been on the pro-choice side um, and then sort of changed my mind during college, which we can talk about if you want, um, just sort of the ins and outs of it. But um, that book really was bringing together um, women who were uh, discussing, you know, a lot of times you hear abortion discussed from a religious perspective, and that's really the way in which a lot of, I think, people on the pro-choice side see it is that it's really a religious issue. And so what we were trying to do is show sort of the cost to women in all sorts of different ways um, that hadn't really been looked at. They'd been looked at in sort of medical journals or, um, you know, I think conservatives generally had thought about them for a long time, but that we wanted to make sort of explicit. And so the middle section of that book is on the medical costs. And I'm probably going to disappoint you by telling you that... um, I actually have spent the last probably 15 years um, not really spending, not really sort of thinking a lot or even keeping up on those medical costs. There are others, and I would really invite you to sort of look into doctors who have spent, um, you know, who have expertise in here. But I think what you've actually, the introduction is quite right, is that there's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of debate about this. um, And there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. You know, does being denied an abortion harm mental health? You know, the Turnaway study, which is the really famous study that's come out, you know, recently um, indicated this kind of, you know, life costs, as you quoted. I think that's a that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, And so you have that on one side and then you have a whole sort of other kind of mountain of evidence that women who've had abortions have, you know, suffer anxiety, depression and substance abuse, suicidality, those kinds of things. So. As I'm not a mental health expert at all and really have not waded into this in quite a while, I'm going to kind of leave that to the side. Um, I don't think it's something that's been resolved. In fact, I think um, probably I'm going to wager a guess that a lot of this comes down to that prior question that you mentioned as to how the woman who's had an abortion really thinks about what she's done. And so those who are, you know, even kind of intuitively pro-life who have abortions, so they have a sense that there is a child, there is a human being that is within them, and they find that they're not able to keep the child for a whole host of obstacles. So financial obstacles, they have an abusive spouse or boyfriend or parents. You see this a lot where parents, even sometimes, you know, Christian parents who are out to the world pro-life are embarrassed about what this might say about them or whatever. And so there's some coercive elements there. the financial ones I find to be, I mean, all of them are coercive in some way. Um, the financial ones seem to me that on both the pro-choice and the pro-life side, 
um, seem to be things that we should all agree on, that there shouldn't be a time ever when a woman who wants to have a child is because of she can't put food on the table. She's going out and feels the need to do what she believes is taking the ending the life of her own child. And so uh-huh. those kinds of psychological bur- burdens, you know, maybe um, it seems to me to be probably um, pretty difficult in that kind of situation. And um, and I think that's what you see a lot of pro-lifers responding to, especially at the grassroots level and especially in, pre- you know, crisis pregnancy centers where, you know, there's a lot of, you know, news out there that, um, uh, you know, these places are are really forcing women, you know, to carry their children, all that. that. And I think really what's going on for the most part um, is that there are women who really want to be able to have their children and they are looking for help. And these, um, there are people um, who are trying to provide really practical guidance to help them. There's, you know, hundreds of maternity homes in our country. Again, on the pro-choice side, those are kind of frowned upon. But really what you see is that there's women who go to these places that are, they're like, they really are like homes where these women are taken in. And not only are they helped to keep the child they want to carry, but they're also helped to know, kind of be given the confidence and the skills um, to be able to raise that child with mm. confidence, especially when there's no father in the picture. And that seems to me to be something that we all should be kind of galvanized around, that these are you know places where women um, who are in difficult situations um, want to do by them the right thing. And on the other side, of course, you have people who, I suppose, um, you know, don't believe that there is um, a child within them. And or they think that um, there is a human being because they know the science, because really we can't kind of, kind of get around that there's a new human organism right at the time of conception, right? Um, this is what embryology tells us and has told us since the 19th century. Um, and so that then there's a different, there's sort of that, you know, there's sort of this idea, I guess, as you put it, that the, that child doesn't have rights. And I would love to get into that because my work um, has really been about a kind of rights theory and how we conceive of rights, I think, is a really important question here. Um, But before I go there, I want to tell you a bit about how I to to answer more. You know, your question is, I think of this as not sort of how abortion harms individual women. So you could say in individual circumstances, a a pregnant woman is facing having an abortion, um, you know, could harm her psychologically, could also harm her in terms of there's a big connection between having an abortion and later preterm birth, which can, um, uh, you know, where there's more preemies due to having Mm. abortions, that kind of thing, which can be devastating if you've aborted a child and then go on to have a child that can't survive because they're born preterm and all that. Of course, there's connections with breast cancer, which are much, much more controversial. And again, which I won't get into. And then you have the individual situation, which I also meant, uh, you know, talked about where a woman is not abortion and therefore has sort of anxiety, depression, whatever. The interesting thing about the turn away study that I think is has not been discussed, you know, when a woman is turned away from having an abortion is that five years after when women are interviewed, the vast majority, and I can't remember, I didn't look it up before that before this, but something like 80% or something of women are glad that they did not have the abortion. Um, Why? Because they have a five-year-old sitting in front of them yeah. who they're very happy they um, you know, uh, have uh, to mother and to parent and to be part of their life. So these are on an individual level, very complex. And I and I uh, very much recognize that there's a lot of pressures in all sorts of ways on women. So my work has really been concerned less about those kind of individual questions and more about systemic consequences to women. Mm, yeah. So and and I mean, you could think about this if you, you know, people know about system dynamics or know about kind of moral hazard effects in economics or anything like that. What you see is that when you decide that the way you're going to kind of solve the problem of the reproductive or sexual asymmetries between men and women, when one of those solutions, and I'll dig into that, what I mean by that, when one of those solutions is abortion, legal abortion, and not only legal abortion, but abortion as a constitutional right, which sort of changes its moral status. I mean, people can deny that, but I think it seems to be true, you know, that this is a legitimate thing to do there's a whole way in which a society shape changes itself around that right. um, allowance that is constitutionally protected. So let me kind of dig into that a little Please, bit more yeah. deeply now that I've set that out. So it's undeniable, it seems to me, that 
you know, the fundamental difference between males and females is that females reproduce inside themselves and males reproduce outside themselves, right? And that the female body is really organized around this reproductive capacity. Now, that doesn't mean a woman's life has to be organized around that reproductive capacity, but the female body is organized as such. And so when a woman and man have sex, um, they're engaged in the same act, but the man can walk away from that act. The woman, should she get pregnant, cannot. In fact, even before she knows it, her body may already begin nurturing what we know from science as a new human being, putting aside whether you think there's value to that human being, or if the way I would put it, if there are duties of care to that human being, if we have responsibilities to that human being, which I think is a better way of thinking about that than whether the human being itself has rights. Um, but we can get to that later. Yeah. Um, and so when you that's what I mean by sexual asymmetry. So reproductive asymmetry is that there's asymmetrical, the consequences of sex are not symmetrical. Right. Yeah. They're not exactly yeah. equal. In fact, they're very unequal. And so you could say that women are disproportionately burdened by the consequences of sex. Absolutely. There are all sorts yeah. of other ways that this is true other than pregnancy, um, different hormones that attach women more to their sexual partners in terms of oxytocin blasting through them, all sorts of other things. Right. There's there's other asymmetrical poss possible consequences in terms of a male strength that Women are disproportionately the victims of rape, not men, though men can be raped too. So this whole thing of how we bring new human beings into the world is a very sexist thing, you could say, right? right? I mean, it's it's like there are major asymmetries. It's that unequal. Yeah. And so what's that? That tracks. It tracks, it tracks yeah. right? You're still with me. You're still with yes. me. Okay. So interrupt. Interrupted any point because, as you know, oh, this, I write very is, long books about we this. We are learning. No, we're in the process of learning. No, believe me, I'll have follow-up questions. But right now, I am just okay. happy okay, somebody good. can explain this really okay, well. Okay, so we've got... Yes. Okay, good, good. And so right now, it seems to me like there's no disagreement, right? So I think yeah. what I've explained is something that a pro-choicer would also very much acknowledge. Absolutely. In fact, that's why they would want abortion, right? Right. Because we've got this inequality at the very heart of the sexual experience between men and women. Yeah. And so the really fundamental question to my mind and what I've really been thinking about for a long, long time and been writing about in terms of feminist history, in terms of feminist theory, in terms of constitutional law, in terms of sexual ethics, and all of these different ways is how do we respond in justice to sexual asymmetry, to reproductive asymmetry? This know. seems to me to be the core feminist question. It seems to be the, the question that every feminist is seeking to respond to. Yes. Is what do we do about this? Right. This this seems unfair. Nature is Camille Paglia, you know, the the kind of dissident, crazy. She's not crazy, brilliant, but feminists who, you know, feminists like to hate. Yeah. She kind of talks about this as like a real a real like nature is has made men and women unequal in this uh, way, in this fundamental way. At the same time. And let me just say, it's not just that there's this disproportionate burden. This is how our culture would definitely put it now, because there's a lot in the news about how burdensome childbearing and pregnancy and how risky it yep. is to a woman's life and all that. Okay. So granted, and those things are true, right? I mean, although women, you know, pregnant pregnancy and childbearing does not kill women anything like the way it used to, right? Before antibiotics and sure. all sorts of yeah. mo right. modern interventions, right? Um, and so and so the really important thing to point out is that it also disproportionately privileges women. And that's something we don't talk about as much wow. until women become mothers. So they finally went through the harrowing experience of pregnancy <laughs> and they have the baby in front of them. And wow, that is an enormous privilege as a woman who's had um, children myself. Um, it is an incredible thing. And so and that's a hard thing to explain or describe to anyone. You can't really describe it to a man, although fathers do yeah. experience this enormous privilege of parenthood and fatherhood. But, but it's just not way. quite the it's same. Not the same. Yeah. It's not quite the same. Right. It's like this 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 solidarity between the mother and child is so powerful um, and and so kind of incredible that you really do feel like you could just do anything. Like yeah. your world has been turned upside down. And the only way you can experience that is if you've actually had a child. And so it's interesting when you see polling about this because there's like really significant political differences or differences of viewpoint in women before like single women and then yeah. women who are mothers you see it's fascinating oh it, it, it's, but this is because of the experience this experience right like you know you look at people know like you look at the polling data it's like they're like 
far left and then they become like center right, like once they become mothers. It's a wild swing. Yeah. Well, and who knows? Quick, I mean, what gonna, are those? Yeah. 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 I just want to jump in and, and I'm going to please. This is there's so much good stuff. But what I really appreciate that you're saying here and I, and I want you to continue um, is I feel like there's one thing that kind of gets lost in this discussion and, and kind of the tribalistic tendencies that people have when they approach this really yeah. delicate situation that all of culture is talking about. We kind of allow our tribes to get into it. So what I really appreciate you talking about um, is that you're actually validating some of the things that uh, people on the other side of this issue than you actually say that there is a sexual asymmetry here that that disproportionately affects women in a way that men will never even have to uh, engage with in yeah. their own lives or experiences. And I do think that's a really important thing to say. I think that both um, at every side of this issue, it has come up with so many easy answers. Well, yeah. just don't worry about it. This is what you have to do. Just have the kid. And that doesn't take into account the difficulty that so many women face if they get pregnant young. Not, I'm not even talking about in cases of rape. I'm talking about in cases just being a kid and doing something stupid. Um, it does affect, you can't pretend that it doesn't affect their lives. And then mm -hmm. the other side, you know, we have all these different things. So I really appreciate you actually bringing this kind of the holistic picture to this. And and I think that is so important in this discussion around the question of, of course, the question of rights. And uh, you said it, you said a different way, which I really Duties find to helpful. care. Yeah. Yeah. Duties to care. Duties I think to care. So, yeah. Obviously, this is such an important ethical, philosophical, even religious right. question. Right. But I do think there's one because there's so many questions kind of lumped in on this issue, really important questions. The question of rights, questions of autonomy, the questions of uh, uh, life and, and value. Uh, sometimes some of those questions can fall down the ladder a little bit. And I think that this is a really valuable thing is to explore this in a way that actually gives honor to the question in a way that... Uh, that addresses the things that people will actually experience and feel. So I love that you address the the experiences of women, uh, regardless, uh, aside from the morality of whether it's in the human, what it isn't human. It's looking at the actual woman who's experiencing these things and acknowledging that there is a difficulty and, like you said, an asymmetry here. So I really, really love um, that aspect. But I, yeah, I, but Joseph, I, uh, ask her any any follow ups. I just wanted to stop and say I think that's a really important thing. To do, and I hope that our listeners will see that, that this is a multifaceted question, and it's not an easy one. Whatever tribe you're a part of, if there's an easy answer, then it's probably not getting to the heart or the the wholeness of how big this is. Yeah. So now I just I want to kind of make sure that I'm tracking sort of with what you're saying with this before you continue on. So you have, like I said, it's the the sexual asymmetry. You know, women bear the response the the. Uh, a disproportionate responsibility and burden, if you want to use that word, of the sexual act and with childbear, certainly childbearing, they have the, you know, the the exclusive burden there. Um, and that creates sort of a problem of what we do with that in a just way as a society. And right. so then you're, and then so then you, but then you're also saying there's a flip side to that, which is that it's an incredible privilege that um, women have. We, as a society, we lose that saying, okay, being a, what makes a, someone uniquely female comes with costs, but it also comes, we only talk about the unique costs that need to be dealt with or overcome or minimized. We don't talk about the benefits. Um, so you're kind of talking about that there are actually also unique benefits to being a female that society is sort of undercutting by only talking about the burdens. So that, so elaborating you know to the degree you want are going to elaborate more on that i'd love you to do that and also you making a point that i i'm really interested in hearing you talk about regarding the um uh the ways that you, it might be individually better for individual women um to have an abortion but how having abortion you were indicating having abortion sort of as a society as an option or as a right or as a privilege um does something to negative for women collectively that's really interesting so i want to make sure you get a chance to elaborate on that yeah no that's a great summary thank you have a gold star um so let me i'm gonna yes. the way i'm gonna attack <laughs> the way i want to come at this is actually by crudely kind of giving two different responses to sexual asymmetry sexual and reproductive asymmetry yeah. in the way this i think is it's helpful to think about this historically which also gets in sort of philosophically, because actually what I do in my book, The Rights of Women, 
is show that there is um, a very different way of thinking about women's rights in the early women's rights movement. So this is the 19th century. And there's a real change that happens in the mid 20th century um, in the second wave of feminism. <clears throat> and um, and so I want to kind of talk about and I'll get to sort of what that change in the viewpoint is. It's it's very philosophical in some sense, but I can really pinpoint We're all it board with that by here. talking about. Yeah, yeah. By talking about abortion is really helpful because what's fascinating more and more people are aware of this, and sometimes they don't really understand why, but those early women's rights advocates, without known exception, were opposed to abortion. And so these are the women who were fighting for women's suffrage, but even before women's suffrage, which only kind of took over the movement in kind of the you know post-Civil War part. Before that, in the antebellum period, there was really a move for joint property ownership, for yeah. recognition of women's work in the home. Now, remember, this is like an agrarian homestead where men and women are cooperating together. But there's this big shift economically, socially, because of the advance of liberalism and industrialization. And so men are pulled out of the, the home due to industrialization. So women are looking for, you know, responses really to this big, giant yeah. socioeconomic shift that yeah. happens with the Industrial Revolution, right? So in the midst of all this, there's... Um, you know, do I think to real pressures on um, the working classes and the poor because of industrialization, but then also to some advances in surgical techniques and then later the advances of antibiotics, you actually see more and more women having abortions. There's an increased prevalence because it has become safer. So prior yeah. to that, like the whole kind of flaw, you know, of human history, there are you know, women who have learned kind of different techniques to what they would say sort of bring on menses, right? Like there wasn't, a, you know, we didn't have ultrasounds, we didn't have pregnancy tests. Um, you know, this is at quickening, people always felt like they had a responsibility, you know, when they felt yeah. the child kind of moving around, they always felt, oh, okay, there's a child, there's a human being I'm responsible to now. Like, I'm not going to do this anymore. But prior to that, there was kind of like, are there like, you know, herbs I can use? Are there sorts of different things? And these things sometimes were, and of course, you could try to use implements, right? But all these things were potentially deadly to the woman, potentially deadly to yeah. the child, but but potentially deadly to the woman as well. So it wasn't until the this time, like mid-19th century, that you start to see some advances surgically. At the very same time, just because of advances and kind of science and all that, you're also beginning to understand better who it is that is yep. in the woman's body developing and that there's someone there before quickening, before she feels it inside, even though they didn't have pregnancy tests. There's a sense that because of our advances in embryology at that time, there's this understanding that the sperm and the egg unite, they, you know, and, yeah. and that there's something of an embryo and when that any anyway. So at that point, there are doctors who know, who have understand this, understand the advances in science, and also see the increasing prevalence of abortion, which they see as both harmful potentially to the woman because abortion has always been harmful. I should mention parenthetically, what did women do who couldn't abort their children who wanted to historically infanticide, right? There was there were a lot more laws against infanticide farther back because women would either expose their children. And this was something actually Christianity responded to way back in pagan yeah. times, right? Because mm. pagans yeah. would did not care about the child, did not care about the dignity of the infant child and would kind yep. of expose children, especially girls, or some, you know, disabled children or whatever who were unwanted. And Christians came along and said, hold on, hold on, you know, th this child, every child, every, you know, human being has, has dignity, et cetera. So this was the first laws against infanticide were kind of post, you know, in Christian times. Okay, so fast forwarding, you have all this, this, these doctors who want to, you know, wait a second, we need to have laws that are, that, that reach not only after quickening, but before quickening as well to prevent and what they saw as potentially harmful to the women, but also harmful for what they understood then was this human being. And so this is this time that actually is fascinating because of what we just saw in Dobbs, the the Supreme Court yeah. opinion that overturned Roe, because all of the laws, many of the laws, I should say, that were erected at exactly this time, so this is mid-19th century to late 19th century, were by these doctors. And those laws are the ones that Roe struck down in 1973. Yeah. And in Dobbs, those laws were all collected in the appendix, showing Doctor. what it was understood that these laws were doing, were protecting children, you know, the child uh, or a woman with child. Um, and so why am I bringing all this history up? Well, because the very same time as advances in science, advances in surgical techniques, and so this pr 
you have this first wave of the feminist movement. And so what did these women think about, you know, all of this yeah. going on? And they wrote quite a bit about their opposition to abortion. Now, it's very important, parenthetically again, that these women did not agree with the doctors and how the doctors talked about women who are sometimes used kind of misogynist language and all that. But they did agree with the doctors that there was a child taken and that that child was taken even before quickening. And so I actually want to read because I think this is fascinating. Um uh, some of just a couple different quotes because I think this yeah. and I I mean just to just to give you kind of one doctor and one leading women's rights advocate, not a Christian herself, Victoria Woodhill. Um, she says many women who would be shocked. Before I go, Victoria Woodhill was the first woman to run for president on the Equal Rights Party platform. She was the first woman wow. to testify testify before Congress. This was not like some woman, uh -huh. you know, in a back room. Like she was yeah. out there as one of the leading women's rights advocates, and she was very controversial in a lot of ways, kind of a radical, um, you know, uh, um, in, in in different ways. Again, not like a kind of, you know, a, a meek Christian woman or something like that. Yeah. So she says, many women who would be shocked at the very thought of killing their children after birth deliberately destroy them previously. If there's any difference in the actual crime, so between abortion and infanticide, we should be glad to have those who practice the latter, she means abortion, pointed out. The truth of the matter, she says, it is that is that it is just as much a murder to destroy life in its embryonic condition as it is to destroy it after the fully form, fully developed form is attained, for it is the self-same life that is taken. Mm. She also talks about how children's rights, which she was very much a proponent of, begin while yet they remain the fetus. So then I just want to give you one more quote, and then I'm going to kind of explain why this is all relevant to, yeah. to today. So this is um, another woman who wrote her name. She's an OBGYN, the fifth woman to practice um, medicine in the United States in 1998. Sorry, 1889. She wrote a book um, called Toxology, which was a book that she was meant for every woman to educate them about, you know, their own kind yeah. of cycles, their own physiology, um, you know, uh, fetal development, all these things. And her name's Alice Bunker Stockham. And she says... Many women have been taught to think that the child is not viable until after quickening and that there's no harm in arresting pregnancy previous to the feeling of motion. Others believe that this there's no life before birth and the cry of the child is heard. But when the female sper germ and male sperm unite, then is the inception of new life. All that goes up to make a human being must be contained in the embryo within this minute organism. And then she goes on to say, is it not plain that the violent or forcible deprivation of existence of this embryo, the removal of it from the citadel of life, is its premature act? And hence the act can be denominated by no more mild term than murder. And anyway, she goes on to say, you know, that the woman who does this defrauds the child of the right to existence. And that the child, just one more thing, because I really like this part a lot. By one false reasoning, does she convince herself that another life still more dependent upon her for its existence? with equal rights and possibilities, has no claim upon her for protection. And I want to read that, the last part, especially because the way in which these women's rights thought about, women's rights advocates thought about their rights was that they had responsibilities to others. They had responsibilities to their children, both born and unborn, yeah. and they had responsibilities to society and that they had to ha be educated like men, that they had to be have access to um, property rights, to contract rights, to suffrage, to entry into the profession in order that they could carry out those responsibilities they had to others. So that they understood themselves. And this is how rights were understood generally at this time, that yeah. rights were correlative with responsibilities. Wow. And so they understood. So when you talk about the rights of the child, it was because the woman had responsibilities to the child. It's also that you could say in some sense that the child has rights on their own. Yes. But it's but it but there but there are these this correlative way in which so how did these women who are against abortion you could say they were morally opposed abortion how did they think they should respond to asymmetry this reproductive asymmetry well they were very clear right all of those they wanted all those civil and political rights for sure so that they could you know be able to care for their own children should a father abandon them which obviously happens all the time yeah. But they also were concerned not only that abortion was the taking of human life or that it was a taking of a human life that mothers and fathers owed duties of care to, but also right. what they were worried about 
is that easy abortion access actually emboldened men to ignore the sexual asymmetries we've been talking about and to prioritize their own sexual pleasure. And so at this time, they were fighting for what was called voluntary motherhood. And it's not the same as what we we would think of as like, oh, I voluntarily don't bear the burden of a child, therefore I can have abortion. It's that I voluntarily engage in that act that could make me a mother. That is sex. And so they were fighting a year before we outlawed marital rape. They were fighting for laws that would keep men from engaging in basically saying, like, you have a marital duty to have sex with me, woman. (laughs) Mm, What was called then the, the male prerogative. They were fighting the male prerogative because for exactly all the reasons we've said, because of this reproductive asymmetry. And some would say, look, like women have this duty to the embryo, to the child. Therefore, they're the ones who should determine when they can have sex, basically. This is a very so like what, old school feminist kind of. Yes, uh, it's old yeah. school. That's right. That's right. So when you hear about people talking about um, sex strikes, <laughs> you know, like after sometimes yeah. you you hear, you know, there's some abortion restrictions go up and then you hear like I think Bette Midler at some point said we should have a sex strike. Yep. It's actually not that dissimilar from first wave feminist thought is wow. that. But it's not only a sex strike, it's that, look, so this is what I'm trying to get to is that there's there's a way in which when you have abortion access, I'm really building on those early feminist thought, is that when you have a lot of abortion access, when you have abortion easily available, it changes the way that society um, just forms itself. So think of all the different uh, ways, right? So not only the way that men are respectful for their reproductive asymmetry. Not only the way for the the way which men are respectful for the idea that sex can produce a child and those chi- that child has, you know, burns the woman. <laughs> but yeah. then think about fast forward now to the 1970s when women start entering the workplace and are seeking to sort of do so on an equal footing with men. And I'm a big proponent of anti-discrimination law um, and think that Absolutely. women should justly be able to to do that, right? Absolutely. And so what how what do we do? Well, we basically just say, because now we're, you know, I'll get to the pill, but we have oh, the pill and abortion access we're, or, or that's what the push is for, abortion access. But what happens then, especially with Roe, which, which allowed for the most extreme abortion laws, really allowed for abortion really throughout the pregnancy in some sense, if a doctor was willing to do it, because you had sort of a loophole around um, well-being, you know, if the well-being of the woman, well, you know, there's all sorts of different considerations about well-being, right? So, abor- so abortion is widely available after Roe in the 1970s during the sexual revolution, right? Women yeah. enter the workplace. The workplace does not need to change to be hospitable to women. It can uh, keep humming along, being a profit, totally profit-driven, um, wow. inst- you know, institutions. Same with educational institutions same with public any t- you know so the assumption is that women will work just like the ideal male worker always has will give her all to the workplace and then yeah maybe she we can get her some you know maternity leave occasionally and it'll be a you know whatever but there's no fundamental shift in thinking about our institutions when women who have bodies and therefore when they have sex could become pregnant um uh, you know, how to, how do they can inhabit these institutions as women. And so what happens to my mind, now I'm going to come back a little bit further back into a little bit more history. You have a whole nother view about what to do about sexual or reproductive asymmetry. And that comes with Margaret Sanger. And Margaret Sanger, mm-hmm. who's the, you know, the, the, the founder of Planned Parenthood, the one who, who really mm-hmm. engineered the birth control pill, she was actually did so in order to prevent abortion. Right. There are all these yeah. still these abortions happening that are unsafe for women. She also thought that they were the taking of human life. Um, they say that very explicitly in early Planned Parenthood literature. They were trying to prevent abortion. Mm-hmm. And so they brought about the pill. Right. But what happened in and whether, you know, whatever you think about the pill, what's fascinating about Sanger is that she said the problem, we cannot solve this problem of, say, poor women having child after child after child, whatever it is with these palliatives, what she called these band-aids that this first wave has been after. We can't try to solve it morally or socially with, she even talked about labor laws, you know, women's Mm. vote. All these were band-aids. We have to get the real problem. What's the real problem for her is the female body, is the fact of sexual asymmetry. And so she wanted to kind of cure asymmetry. 
And so when you do that with the pill, you know, you flatten when a woman is able to, you know, take, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a pharmaceutical that changes her physiology and kind of tricks her body um, so that um, she can basically seem to have sex like a man. But of course, the, the pill is not foolproof, right? And what it does yeah. is it escalates what economists called sexual risk taking. And what's and because it's not just that, oh, we can have, you know, more sex in marriage. Wow. Now we sort of assume our sex to be sterile, right? Like the default is that sex is an infertile act because we've got the pill on board now. And women, I mean, in vast droves went after the pill. And so it changed sexual risk taking. So so people were taking they were having they were engaging in sex outside of marriage. And that upped all sorts of unwanted pregnancies, therefore kind of hatching toward legal abortion. And so all this is to say that these two different responses to sexual asymmetry are incredibly distinctive. But to my mind, when you privilege abortion to the extent that we did with Roe v. Wade and say it's a constitutional right, that is that it is something that, you know, and sort of ignore entirely the, the duties of care we owe children, then who does it harm the most? It harms poor women and it harms women who want to engage in the work of having children and potentially work in the workplace because the yeah. workplace hasn't changed. And so imagine a single mom who doesn't have a dad around to help out with her child. And she now has a low paying job that has rigid, rigid workplace um, wow. kind of hours and those kinds of things. Nothing changes because it's expected that she will have infertile sex. Well, if that doesn't work with contraception, but contraception fails, then she can just have an abortion. This is really, really interesting because, again, there's so many conversations having about this sub subject right. in so many different ways. What's really unique to what you were saying, I think, is even beyond what, we, what I initially even was thinking about when I come to this subject, which is how does this harm the individual women? And there there are ways, and you, you can say they're measurable and there are things to look into, of course. But what you're looking at is literally this bigger picture of how, again, we hear this word all the time, so we're almost immune to it, but there's a systemic reality that happens when abortion is um, normalized, is celebrated. Accept, yes, celebrated, again, words we hear all the time, but normalized. And you're saying it's actually working against women's rights because what you have is ultimately changes the way that men view and treat women. And if you want to talk about toxic masculinity, which, again, I think is a real issue that exists in the world, you're saying that actually the existence of abortion makes it so that men will treat women more toxically, knowing there's not going to be as big a burden or at least risk for that burden to happen. And even you say there's a systemic reality, which happens in the workplace, which means companies can rely on you. Um, to never have that responsibility so they don't have to capitulate in any way, shape, or form to the realities that women for the past thousands of years have had to um, face. That so there's no societal responsibility on the companies to make way for or make shape for um, the realities of a woman's experience. So that's really interesting to hear you say yeah. that abortion affects culture on a systemic, not just individual, and there are ways on a systemic um culture-wide way. And I think that's a really interesting way that I haven't often heard talked about in these discussions. Yeah. Can I, can I jump on that and kind of um, uh, summarize and then kind of give examples of what I, I think you're talking about that you can then, you know, explain to me where I'm wrong or where I, but it, but it's, but you're talking about these two visions of feminism. The one that started out was saying, here's how men and women are different. You know, the sexual asymmetry you talked about. Um, and the solution was, we need to change society to be more accommodating to women's reality. You know, women's lived experience, the women's That's differences. Right. Yeah. It's like, okay, so because women and men are different, men need to change their behavior in order to accommodate that, you know, so with the, you know, voluntary pregnancy laws. And we need to change, you know, and very have other laws, property rights, whatever, all these other things. We need to change society in order to accommodate those differences because right, as right now, wider society for a variety of historical reasons are accommodated to the way men are and we need to shift society to be more accommodating to the way women are different with yeah let me just okay. interject and say votes for women chastity for men was actually a suffragist slogan <laughs> so yeah okay cool perfect perfect it's like okay society needs to change to accommodate the way women are different and special and unique um and then you got a separate vision that came along and said no 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 society doesn't need to change women need to change biologically we're going to create technology that will you know 
to perhaps overstate it, but but not by too much, to change women's biology so that they're more like men, and then we will allow them into men's spaces into society. I want you to rebuild her like you did me. Steve, your bionics cost us $6 million. We can't Come on, you have the technology. You say it all the time. Steve, we have the technology. You won't shut up about it. So men's spaces in society don't have to change. It's like now women, because they're like men, they're allowed into society, allowed into the workforce, allowed into that. And so in a collective way, it's, you know, abortion has been a way for society to get away with not welcoming women as full persons, if you want to use that, into society. And you can see examples of that, that, you know, people on the right and left have pointed out that, you know, one uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Companies were tripping over themselves to say, hey, we'll pay for your trip to another state that allows abortion. And everyone was like saying, yeah, so you don't have to pay for my maternity care. You know, it was like- And all the other accommodations and conveniences, right? Exactly. That that having a family, right. It's like, you're That's not right. doing this to be altruistic. You're doing it so that, you, that you, we can be a good worker bee that doesn't affect the bottom line. That's right. And That's right. like you were saying, you know, you have all these people, you were talking about the crisis pregnancy centers, which, you know, earlier, which, you know, people pointed out, it's like, you know, outnumber prime parenthood um, uh, centers like three to one or something like that. But the sort of, let's say like, yeah, these are places where women who want to go um, uh, get at, make the choice for childcare can go get help with that. But- they um but those get sort of attacked by society whereas this the you know planned parenthood which says okay if you want to make the choice to you know do something less costly for us which is just get rid of the child instead of us as society having to say how are we going to help take care of the child how are we going to accommodate the choice for life all society says well you know what would be much more convenient for us is if you chose this other thing which is you know to get an abortion so we don't have to pay for it so there's almost an argument to be made here, and I hate to even say this, but it's almost as if unfettered capitalism benefits from a society that encourages oh, yeah. um, you double abortion. the workforce without That's any exactly accommodations. Right. That's right. So this is actually exactly the point I make in my book, is that there's a way in which that first wave of feminists very self-consciously is pushing back against industrial capitalism and the way in which it is encroaching into the family. And so what I argue is that actually second wave by bringing about abortion in order to sort of what I call it sort of a male normativity, exactly as you described really, really well, right? So that women can kind of fit into these capitalistic institutions, that there's basically a capitulation to the market logic. It's a capitulation to, you know, this the capitalistic ethic. And so what's fascinating is that this doesn't just harm women. It does definitely harm poor women and working class women, especially single mothers the most. There's no question about that. Yeah. Yeah. But it just harms the family overall. Why? Because oh, yeah. what happens in is there's a shift from the goods of the family to the goods of the market. And so the goods of the market Man. take precedence. And so when you're a dad who's looking to be really involved in, in your children's lives, if you're a dad who's looking to take off time uh, for flexible work, to be a full co-parent, like maybe you both work full time, maybe you both, both, both work three quarters, whatever it is, you're trying to look for that, you will be hammered at your workplace. So they'll say, oh, it's all, isn't it nice? We accommodate families. Generally, men who do so, even if they're doing great work, are are, are harmed a lot. Just, I can't remember if it's just as much as women are harmed to do so, but it is really significant in the way that right. it's just it's just been a hatchet against accommodating family responsibilities overall. And so in some way, since, you know, women came into the workplace, we've just doubled exactly as you say, we've doubled the workers, increased GDP. That's what kind of a boom was for the last half wow. century, right? Wow. With basically nothing for families. And so now we're kind of all scratching our heads like, who takes care of the children? Won't somebody please think of the children? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, this, and the worst part of all this, like the most tragic part for me as someone who's gotten to really balance work and family quite well as someone who does sort of intellectual work and laptop class, that kind of stuff, is that there are moms and dads, especially single moms, but moms and dads who want to spend more time with their children. They want to make it to all sorts of things. They want to be with infants in the home. They want to be with toddlers in the home. They want to come up with really flexible ways to take care of their children. And yet they can't because we have this kind of, we've like really kind of ennobled those kind of the market goods and sort of and yeah. so it's it's the way it's this weird way like the horseshoe theory you know where kind of <laughs> the far right that's like really into kind of libertarian 
you know, hands off the market. And this really kind of ardent pro-abortion left kind of come hand in hand at the end. And I don't think either knows, especially the, you know, the far the far left sees this because and even in the philosophical underpinnings, they're both incredibly libertarian. So this the the chant for autonomy that we hear all the time, bodily autonomy, in one way, first of all, just parenthetically, it just doesn't make sense to say that abortion is about bodily autonomy because there's another body involved, again, to what I would say to whom we owe duties of care. And that's really the central question is, do we think that we as human beings, as moms and dads, owe duties of care to our children? Everyone would say so after they're born. Everyone would even say so late, maybe, in the in the pregnancy, as long as there's not sort of complications. Why is it that we don't owe duties of care when the, when the child is most vulnerable? And so that's a question I kind of leave with your listeners, because it seems to me it's a much better way of getting around. The way I frame this is if we owe duties of care to all of our children, vulnerable children, dependent children, which I believe mothers and fathers owe our children, owe their children, then what duties of care do fathers and mothers owe each other? And what duties of care does society, do workplaces owe families? And once you start thinking about it that way, you build everything back up. So we're not worried against each other. It's not like the autonomous woman against the, you know, non-human clump of cells. It's not men against women. It's not workplaces against, you know, families, whatever. It's thinking about duties of care and the responsibilities we all mm. owe one another in order to what? Well, <laughs> to do the civilizationally essential work of raising the next generation. And if if people don't think that that's essential, well, we will not be around for very long. <laughs> and so yeah. it seems to me that there has to be a way in which the family is the work of the family. And this is kind of the essential part point mm -hmm. of my book is that the work of the family needs to be applauded and honored and privileged and supported if necessary in different ways. And there are all sorts of you know debates you could have about how one would do that. And not just sort of, you know, say like this is an individual family having these individual kids and it's all their benefit and all their burden. And they kind of have to deal with that themselves because this is work that they're doing for all of us uh, um, well, in, you know, bringing about the next generation. This is really I'm, I'm really we, we have to wrap up, but I don't yeah. want to because this is such an interesting conversation uh, to me that I've never had. Are we going to have to have her back on at some point? Yeah. Do it. We might have <laughs> to. But. <laughs> I hope that our listeners, I, I feel like this is a podcast that no matter where you fall on this yeah. subject, you're going to both learn something and probably be mad at this conversation in one way, shape, yeah. the other. Because that usually this, happens when I <laughs> yeah, get arrows from all sides. Because you made everyone angry, but you also taught yes. everyone something. <laughs> yeah. I love that this conversation brought us to a new kind of perspective on this whole issue that I think yeah. is really important for us all to at least grapple with no matter where we end up. Um, but thank you so much for coming yes. on today. This has been really enlightening. And I and I hope that our listeners will send us in their thoughts, their their feedback, their questions about this. Tell us what uh, we got wrong, what we got right. And um, and yeah, so this is really, really good. Thank you for coming on today. Um, it's just been so enlightening. Yeah. Think about these things. This that are is, really I, I, you, there's a lot of great, you know, I, I'm, I've really enjoyed doing this podcast. There's a lot of great episodes. You know, but my favorite ones are where there's a paradigm shifting one where it's like we, you know, we're mm -hmm. saying, okay, here is a completely different way to think about this topic that you haven't even considered. Even if you end up, whatever, decide to end up staying pro-life or pro-choice or wherever a camp you are, this is a completely different way to think about it that you need to consider, I think is really compelling. So I'm really- and Also, uh, I want to say out there to any women who are facing this, anyone who has experienced this, we love you. You're welcome here. This is a place where no matter where, what side of the aisle, the issue you come from, um, we just want to think deeply about these issues and and hopefully encourage you to do the same. So uh, yeah. there's no judgment here. This is just a place to think about these issues. And we're so glad that, Erica, you were here to do that with us today, which moves us into the ending of our episode and our favorite our favorite uh, uh, segment. segment. Yes. Our blesses and curses, where we take a work of art, media or resource on our topic and um, uh, bless it either. So either bless it, which is to recommend it or to curse it, which is to diss it. Um, and we always allow our guests to participate if they so choose, but they're under no obligation. Um, so would you like to, do you have anything you'd like to bless or curse um, on that air? <laughs> or do you want to uh, let us let us ramble on a little bit and see if anything comes to mind? So I'll just do one that came to mind immediately when I heard this. Right. And that is, and I have no idea if your listeners would have heard, would have seen this, but there was sort of this 
what looked kind of like, I don't know if it was like a shot in the sky, lights up in the air of some image. And the image was words out there that I would just want to say. It said, abortion is freedom. And that's what I would want to curse. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah. Wow. And that was a work of art that got spread across it was the a, sky. A yeah. modern work where of art. Where was That's this? Right. Do you know? I, um, I can't remember exactly where it was. Um, I just saw it mm. on Twitter. And and <laughs> whoever whoever did that, I encourage you to go listen to this whole episode. Uh, yeah. So you might find something new to think about. Yeah. You they go suddenly, through. My... They suddenly uh, somehow managed to like hear us to the end. end instead of yeah. Yes. <laughs> we'll clip this part. Um. <laughs> I, I don't I really struggled on a curse. There's like too much to curse. So it's like the curse of knowledge here where there's just there's yeah. a way. Um so I'm gonna start with my bless. Uh, I'm gonna bless the movie Juno. I think <laughs> that that does a brilliant job of actually exploring um the what it what a pregnancy does to a young woman who is <laughs> facing this. And I think that there if there's anything that the uh the Christian side has failed at is often taken into consideration. Um, what the woman experiences, and that's that's the person who is having to deal with these big questions and issues that have high consequence. Right. And I think sometimes we can simplify it just a little too much um, on on the Christian side. And so I appreciate this movie um, that it explores the reality of what being pregnant looks like, yeah, and those fears and the, and and difficulties and doubts and questions. And so that was a, I, I think, an eye-opening movie for me as a guy who will never have to experience this. Yeah, you know, and it, it gave me, let me step into someone else's experience and gave me a wholer picture um, of the things at stake. And so I, I really um, enjoyed is the wrong word, but appreciated uh, that movie. As far as curse, again, I'll just go back to pretty much what I always say is, listen, I go on TikTok, and even if I agree <laughs> with people on there, thirty seconds or even I think it's up to three minutes now is not enough time to fully encapsulate the 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 bigness of these issues and so i would curse almost anyone on any side trying to abortion tiktok you're gonna curse abortion tiktok but i don't want to call anyone specifically out but i think that a lot of people with good intentions try to fully encapsulate this issue but i just think there's some issues that are so big and so Messy might be the wrong word, but complicated and, and tied and knotted that you cannot figure it out in three minutes. So I would say if you're getting your information from a three minute or 30 second video from TikTok, uh, um, I would say don't do that. I would say listen to places <laughs> like this and then can even this episode, an hour long, isn't even nearly enough to fully encapsulate the bigness of this. This issue. is a so teaser I'm... to go read uh, Erica's book. <laughs> exactly. And so that's what I would encourage people to do. I'm, I'm cursing the bite-sized information yeah. um, age we live in where we think we know everything about a subject because of a 30-second um, gotcha uh, video. Yeah. And that's why I encourage people to read books, read, read lo- watch entire lectures. Um, obviously, the best information you can possibly find is on this podcast. But yeah, so that's my really cop-out curse. So cool. there you go. <laughs> cool. I will try to be quick. Um you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bless two movies and curse two movies that on on sort of both sides of this issue. Obviously, and Nathan rightfully makes fun of, fun of me for this, but I I really my you know my favorite pro life movie that's out there is October Baby, um because it's <laughs> Irwin Brothers' first movie, and while I like it again, it's it's a kind of a sweet almost Hallmark style kind of dramedy about a young girl who finds out that she her health problems are because she's the result of a failed abortion, so she goes and tries to find her birth mother. And what I really loved about the movie as I've grown, as I've gone on from my first time is that it's all about expanding your, your range of empathy. Cause at first, like she's very angry at everyone. She's angry at, you know, the mother birth mother who tried to abort her. She's angry at her adopted parents for keeping this from her. And as she goes on her journey, like she learns to kind of you know forgive and understand where everybody is coming from. And I thought that this, that a movie about abortion, that's about, expanding people's ranges of empathy and saying like hey other people's really stories, good movie other people's stories matter too and yeah it's like it's and you think it's a pro it's a pro-life movie okay it's trying to make you include you know the child you know in your range of empathy and it is but it's trying to include everybody in there very explicitly so i really love that for for that reason yeah. particularly um i'm also going to bless oddly enough you know so um yeah i've blessed this before but for a different reason but um the recent invisible man um a reboot with Elizabeth Moss, and the reason in this case, mm-hmm. again, I think it's a great scary movie. It's one of my, you know, favorite scary movies. 
um, which is another thing Nathan makes fun of me for, rightly. Um, a bit, but uh, <laughs> but I will say that uh, it's one of the things I love about it is it actually has one of the best, I think, arguments and empathy arguments for why you know a woman would want to, on an individual basis, um, have an abortion because again, it portrays a bad guy who is trying to control her and trap her in an abusive relationship through a child. And I remember, you know, watching this in the theater with a pro-life female friend of mine and she hearing her say, this is the best argument for, you know, abortion I've ever seen. Because Damn. if if I was in a situation like this, I would want to have an abortion and I'm a pro-life person. And I was like, that's a good, I mean, like, you know, again, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. But again, it expands your range of empathy for saying, yeah, sure. I get it. I get it. Yeah. And it's and not a simple thing. It's yeah. not a simple thing. And so, uh, and telling that in just a, a great horror thriller format is a great entertaining way to like deal with these hard issues, which I always enjoy. Okay. So on curses, good again, good. Curse of for life and a pro choice film. So again, nice, I'm very I know, fair. Exactly. That's, you know, what, what, what we try to do here. <laughs> um, is I, I know that I've, I, I, I pick on this, but I'm going to curse the movie unplanned. Um, mostly because of it's it's just badly written, you know. You know, for first of all, it's like <laughs> over reliance so. over reliance on voiceover and 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 just kind of like hackneyed dialogue. But also, you know, it, I don't I don't care about you portraying the you know the pro choice people as villains. That's fine. That's the movie, you know. But they did it in such a cartoonish way that there's no pro-choice person that would say i can own this as 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 something that will teach me it just gives people excuses to not take uh uh not not take that seriously that what you're saying because i know the way you're portraying me is not true so that's that is i i i have to curse it for that reason even though i i love the real life story you know i think it's great good you told a true story about a person's journey that's great i just think the execution was was unworthy of it um and then oh my gosh i i Sat through. I, I watched a lot of um, pro-choice movies for an article as well. Um, I was to say I'm going to curse the movie Saint Francis um, because there's a, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of pro-choice movies which surprisingly I, I I've been shocked to see basically all portray the protagonist getting the abortion as um, you know privileged women who um, are not in dire circumstances who. Um, uh, and who don't struggle with the choice getting abortion, given that that's sort of pro-choice people, that's their pitch, is that, look, this is necessary for the people. It's always a hard choice, and it's people need, we need this for the underprivileged, and yet all of the protagonists, exact opposite of that. But I will say that the, the worst that I've seen was the movie St. Francis, and the reason is because it does the most to dehumanize people of who see the world differently and there is a scene in there that of you know doing a self-induced abortion where they you know one looks at the fetus and with her boyfriend laughs about the fact that it looks Boom. like a rat turd and they have wow. and it's just and I, it's just like and then at the end yells and screams at the whole world for making her feel guilty about this and it was just like Amazing. first of all you portrayed a world where nobody in your circle was doing that and so, so it's like the the level of dehumanization that I felt like was in that story um, uh, was was wrong in the same way that I praised the October baby and appraised the invisible man for saying, hey, let's humanize other people's experiences. This was built around dehumanizing other people and their experiences in the worst way that I've seen a movie do in a very long time. So that's uh, like, theirs would be my blesses and curses. I don't know when we're going to do another abortion episode, so I'm doing all the highlights of of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of, 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 of lesser curses of abortion movies. So there you have it. So anyway. That was Erica, very enlightening. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for being here today. If people want to engage more with your work, yes. you're doing um, and get in contact with whatever it might be that you're putting out into the world and your thoughts, where can they go? Yeah, so I'm going to mention a couple of things. You can definitely follow me on Twitter, just at Erica Bakiaki. That's my handle. Good luck spelling that. You can find <laughs> my writing at um, Ethics and Public Policy Center. So if you just put Ethics and Public Policy Center and my name in Google, I'll come up first and you can find a whole bunch of my writing. And um, 
you can sort of one thing I want to mention, too, is just a uh, a pro-life, a statement of scholars um, talking about situations where a woman's life is in danger or any mm, type of yeah. grave consequences, yeah. which we didn't get to talk about, but I think is a yes. really important thing Absolutely. Um, that that has to be discussed because it's not, again, as you say, a very obvious or easy thing. Right. Um, the other thing I would mention, too, because I'm really excited about it, is a new online journal that I've helped to launch called Fair Disputations. So like the fairer sex, okay. um, but dispu- disputations that you should all go and follow because we're doing, um, well, go visit, but then get on our uh, Friday email list. Because what we're doing is bringing together women from actually both the left, kind of left, and then I would say pro-life feminists, but people are all sorts of all over the place on the question of abortion but are coming together um, to sort of rethink feminism writ large. Um, I'd also actually want to recommend my book. I would love for you guys to read, but it's 400 yeah. pages. And so you really want <laughs> That's it. the only reason that a, wasn't in my glasses. It's an, it's and a, I have a gun. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, an intel, it's an intellectual history of the cause of women's rights. And obviously, wow. if you're someone who likes history, I would definitely dig right into it. I hear it's very readable. It's a page-turning history. <laughs> if you're, you're talking to an for, audience of overthinkers, so exactly. they must no, no, right no, up good. their alley. I'm going to go against my self-interest, but sort of for my self-interest and, and recommend another book, which is popularization of some of my arguments that Ooh. just has come out in the U.S. called Feminism Against Progress by my friend, wow. um, the brilliant Mary Harrington. And that's a much quicker read where you can get a lot of kind of, um, you know, the points uh, that I that I make in a deep history, um, sort of legal history, um, that book. So those are all so my you, recommendations. Amazing. So if that's you want awesome. to do it on easy mode, do uh, yeah exactly. Do yeah. I don't progress. know that it's easy mode, but she <laughs> is she's a she's a woman coming from the left who's really rethought a lot of her kind of wow. progressive feminist priors, and she's an incredible she's a brilliant woman, but also just an incredible writer. Um, and so she so I'll tell you the last thing I'll say, and I know you have to stop, but so when um she had read my book and then she kind of encapsulated it, she said, and I took four hundred pages, three one hundred pages of footnotes, but three hundred pages and then one hundred pages of footnotes to say what she said in one sentence, which is that feminism did not begin but end with the sexual revolution. So wow. I will leave you with that. That is a that's a hook right there. So yeah. go read the go check out Erica's work, her writing. Um this is a, no matter where, if you agree with or disagree, this is someone to definitely um, engage with more because they're thinking deeply about these questions. If you want to engage with us or, or send us all your love and hate mail, please go to the overthinkersjournal.com. Uh, you can also join our group on Facebook. It's a private Facebook group with 14,000 members uh, having a lot of fun thinking deeply with people just like yourself. If you want to get in touch with me, go to nathanclarkson.me uh, or uh, search my name, Nathan Clarkson, on any of the socials. Joseph. You can find me on any of the socials as well. Oftentimes it's under normal guy. Uh, don't ask. And you will also, you can find me at the josephholmstudios.com. You can also find um, many of my uh, articles on um, movies and culture and uh, philosophy and faith at religionunplugged.com. If you want, you can find my article, I, mass article I did on pro-life and pro-choice uh, fil- movies, comparing them um, if you're interested in our thoughts this episode uh, regarding that. And uh, yes, uh, thank you everyone so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. And remember, if it's worth thinking about, it's worth overthinking about. 